You are walking through the deep, dark woods. You have been treading on the forest floor for days, weeks, maybe months. You don't really know anymore. This space devours time. You lay your weary form to rest beneath an ancient tree, and, lost in momentary reverie, you hear a sound, or not quite a sound, something that seems to have the properties of little sparkling lights. You get up and follow the sound. Now your step seems guided and reinvigorated with purpose. Wondrously, you reach a clearing. There you are greeted by the sight of a tower crowned by the full moon. Atop the tower, splitting the lunar light, a cloaked silhouette raises a wand to the sky and the moon shines golden. Welcome, disciple. Welcome to the realm of the wizard in the ivory tower. Hello, friends. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about Chris Chan's dimensional merge. <laughs> How's that for an opening? Um, yeah, I've been, been watching a lot of Chris Chan videos lately because I think he's a fascinating case, you know, from viewed from many aspects. He's fascinating in many different ways. Um, for those of you who happen to not know for some reason, uh, Chris Chan is probably the most documented uh, part of internet history. So, Chris Chan, uh, born Christopher Weston Chandler, later legally changed his name to Christian West Weston Chandler, and currently Christine Weston Chandler, is um, a trans woman uh, who is on the autism spectrum. And um, Chris Chan, is the famous creator of Sonichu, which is um, uh, a Sonic and Pikachu hybrid. Um, and he turned that into, that character he created into a webcomic. And, well, he put himself and his creation on the internet. And you can imagine what happened. Anyway, so this... Um, evolved into like a decade-long uh, story of him being trolled and him responding to the trolling and him par in parallel creating his uh, webcomic and all the other things he did and this just blowing up into a, a huge world of uh, fascinating bizarreness. Um, and I want you to know, I have absolutely no ill will toward the guy. Actually, I, as I said, if I, I find... okay. Sorry, girl. You know, it's it's it's. I'm not. This is not some some kind of um, uh, political gendering issue. You know, I, I get it mixed up because for so long, uh, Christian identified as male, and so much of the imagery I have of him, of her now. Sorry, see, in my mind is male, but I'm gonna go with a female pronoun because you know that's how Christian. Um, self-identifies now, I, I have no reason to disrespect that. Um, so yeah, and this whole thing just evolved into a huge uh, story that became 
so integrally part of internet history. And now we're at a point where um, Chris Chan uh, said that the like our universe or dimension, as he, as she calls it. Oh, sorry, sorry, guys. Um, sorry to anybody who might be offended by my <laughs> misgendering. It's not on purpose. Um, and oh, and. For those of you on the other side, politically, I don't put that much emphasis on it. No, just trying to be polite. Um, so anyway, we've reached a point where Christian has announced that our dimension or our universe and the universe of uh, Christian's webcomic, the Sonichu world, or... And I think there's more than that. There's like a, a universe where all original characters are real, that these two universes or dimensions will merge into one. And I've been thinking a lot about that. And I've been thinking a lot about that because I find something... something that feels very familiar to me in that. Um... You know, I, I kind of mentioned that in my first episode where I said, I'm not expecting the dimensional merge. I'm not Chris Chan. Um, so I was, I was kind of alluding to that. Because I think in this fantasy or wish, let's say, of Chris Chan's, uh, we have an archetypal idea. And I think that it's the archetypal idea of the tearing of the veil. Uh, like a a breakthrough to another world that comes from a yearning for another world other than the one you live in. And, of course, in Chris Chan's case, and as we're probably going to see in probably every other case as well, this is very strongly connected to the idiosyncrasy, the essential idiosyncrasy and the life experience of the individual. Uh, having that thought and that desire and that pull for the tearing of the veil, the yearning for another world. And I think in many ways, if you think about it, this is a the liminal individual's dream, really. You know? Think about it. You don't really fit into a category in such a way that this world is for you, you know, on a spectrum from boring to unbearable. And wouldn't you want to be in another world or to break into another world or wish that there is another world? At least, at least you want to imagine that there is a world that has much more value for you or where at least you fit in, you know? So even if you can never get to it, you can imagine that, ah, it is somewhere there. You're looking, it's like looking toward the stars and imagining worlds, you know, in a galaxy far, far away. And I've been strongly feeling that for my entire life. You know, I have been having this wish for the other world, uh, the desire to tear the whale and break through. And I had never the delusion. I never, okay, let's put it this way. I never ended up, at least yet, to that point where this world became so utterly unbearable to me that my mind just breaks and... Um, rebuilds itself around uh, a need for wish fulfillment.
but you never know, you know, I'm still young. Um, but I've always felt that. And I think it has been very crucial uh, to who I am and who I have become. And all my interests ranging from my arts to, you know, my even my academic work. And we're going to get into all of that. Fear ye not. Um, so, yeah. I think I think there's there's something to it that you know liminal individuals um, such as artists but not only are in some ways you know the orphans of this world you know in in terms of psychogeography or psychoontology or uh, ontopsychology coming up with a, a lot of nice new terms today. Um, I know I sound a little bit more excited. I think it's the combination of a lot of caffeine and Christian. Um, I like it, though, i got to say. So being in this psychogeography of being uh, of not... Being in the feeling of not belonging to this world, you know, this this results in a strong psychological need that manifests as a kind of pull toward a world beyond, you know. And another way to see this, because it might not necessarily be this, uh, it might not manifest in terms of imagery as breaking into another world, but it can also manifest as a need to impregnate uh, the world of the mundane and the world of the material, to impregnate uh, the world with wonder, you know. Uh, make it less boring so that it's bearable in some ways. Uh, and, you know, the, the, so the liminal individual uses their naturally high imagination to make the world more interesting. Um, and this is in many ways a defense mechanism, you know. Uh, I don't belong in this world and I can't bear this world, so I'm going to either, you know, enrich it or I'm going to... Uh, rebuild my mind around the idea of a world beyond that I can inhabit or that I can at least hope toward or think of in a way that balances my unbearable existence uh, in the world of men. <laughs> and, you know, in, in certain cases, and uh, you can see that in Christian as well, this results in a power fantasy, but not always, you know, because if you're in that state... Very often you don't have power, and so it's very easy to end up imagining a world where you have power. But um, And that can certainly um, manifest when certain criteria are met. Um, lower intelligence might be part of it, but it also depends on how you measure lower, lower intelligence. Because I would not really say that Chris Chan is uh, unintelligent, you know. He's certainly neuroatypical, but um, in some ways that actually even makes him more intelligent than the average. But there is something about him that makes him lack uh, a part of insight that um, results in his dream world turning into a power fantasy. Whereas with other people, it's not really a power fantasy. Um, but maybe we can discuss this another time. I think the whole Mary Sue power fantasy thing, it's it's extremely interesting, but if, if I were to um, shove it in here, you know, this, this episode would never end. But yeah, so we have, we've kind of laid the, the groundwork here, you know, 
tearing the veil, the yearning for another world. Um, so let's get a little bit more into taking it apart and examining it. In the introductory episode, I talked about how there is a triad that kind of functions like um, a central axis of my interests and uh, to a certain degree, you know, spreading on from that point of pretty much my entire character and my idiosyncrasy. And this the, the, this uh, triad that serves as this, this axis is art, occultism, or let's say magic, and um, philosophy. And also that I um, have manifested a very strong, in the past, a very strong interest in transhumanism, something which stills, still, sorry, um, interests me very much. And I think these, these four things, uh, like art, occultism, philosophy, and technology slash uh, futurism slash transhumanism, I think these four things um, are, are very, very nicely applicable uh, to analyzing this, or exploring, better said, this tearing of the veil concept. Um, so, uh, let's go on ahead and uh, start with art, uh, as we should probably do with every issue in life, I'd like to say. Um, so, I've, I've talked about my interest in fantasy, uh, which is not just... Um, you know, reading a lot of fantasy, playing fantasy video games, uh, or consuming fantasy, but also creating fantasy. Um, uh, you know, I've said before that I write fantasy short stories. Um, I, eventually, I'm going to graduate to novels, I promise, um, but not yet. So I have a very strong interest in fantasy. I, I develop lore, I do a lot of world building, and I explore fantasy a lot. And, you know, generally, I, it's it's definitely my favorite genre. And it's my favorite genre because I think it's it's modern mythology. You know, it's the modern way of touching the archetypal, uh, primal epistemology uh, of the human mind, which is mythical thinking and mythopoeia, and you know this um, uh, creating mythological, essentially metaphorical narratives. Um, of what you experience and what you see, and codifying into codifying them into a, a mythological story, and um, so that's that's why fantasy is so important to me, uh, and also why it you know it's so pleasant to me also because it really touches that primal nerve for me you know, and it really it's able to immerse me into. Well, essentially, another world, a world of archetypes and deeper significance and away from mundanity. Is that a word? Mundanity? I think so. The mundane. Okay. And um, so already I've, I've gone into, uh, you know, the, the tearing the veil, the other world issue. But um, that's, that's almost on a meta level. Let's, let's try to go into uh, fantasy and... Uh, on a deeper level, also mythology, and try to find some of um, uh, some instances of manifestation of this archetype of tearing the veil. And the first thing that comes to mind is uh, Dragon Age Inquisition. Uh, not the best Dragon Age game, not the best fantasy game, but although it's pretty good, but definitely one of the best fantasy series and fantasy worlds. And um, 
So I think one of the things that was so, one of the, the elements of the Dragon Age world that was uh, very interesting was this concept of the Fade, which is like a dream world. And it's also the world where magic comes from in a way. So, you know, practicing magic is kind of, you know, pulling from the Fade as a source and putting, taking things from the numinous realm of the Fade and manifesting them into the material world. And, you know, there's this idea that there is a, a veil between the Fade and the material world. And um, later on in the lore, uh, so this is, I guess, a bit spoilery, but whatever. Later on in the lore, in the third game, we find out that one of the old elven mages who became venerated as a god, Solas, uh, he actually created the veil. That there was a time in the deep past where the fate and the material world were one and the same. And then they were separated by the veil. And this has created almost like a, a, a wound in existence, you know. And so essentially the, the mages are the, the people who, in a way of, in a Socratic way, quote-unquote, remember the other world. You know, it's deep inside of them. You know, for Socrates, we're going to go into that more in the philosophy section, but, you know, Socrates thought that you already know the truth and somebody just needs to play midwife to you and help you birth the truth. So the mages, they still have the feeling of that other world that is gone. And there is this sense that, and it's not just a sense, as we find out, it's, it's in the lore of this universe that the material world is now lesser because a, a very important part of it has been separated of it. And it's the realm of the numinous, it's the fade. And in the deep past, um, when it was still the age of the elves and not yet the age of the humans, the fade and the material world were interconnected. So mind used to shape material reality in a way. And, um, you know, humans and spirits uh, used to, um, you know, be in the same world. And uh, the elves were also immortal before the veil. And with the creation of the, the veil, mortality came to the elves. So we also have this idea of the fall, you know, from, from Genesis. And um, this too is very interesting because essentially there is also in, in, in Christian thinking this, um, this idea that there is that the, the world in which the perfect state existed, the paradise, Eden, uh, has been severed from us and we kind of try to climb back into it. So, you know, we have the tearing of the veil, uh, not... or more specifically, the, the yearning for the other world and that there is a veil between that. You know, the fall is the veil and the fall is equivalent to the creation of the veil in many ways. So in Dragon Age Inquisition, Solas uh, ends, ends up being, spoiler here, uh, the hidden antagonist of the series, essentially. And, um, you know, he he's trying to essentially uh, destroy the veil and recreate the world he knew and the world he destroyed. You know, he tries to reclaim paradise, uh, although he was the one creating the fall. Um, and it's very interesting. Uh, and, you know, we uh, we have the, of course, the archetype of, uh, of Satan who is 
not satisfied with the world he lives in, the world created um, by the divine mind, by God. So he wants to create his own realm, his own kingdom. Of course, he ends up with creating hell. And this is, uh, you know, this is a very interesting archetype that we'll discuss in another episode. But again, there's something important. The, the, the fall and the veil, you know, I think you can already see a parallel there. Um, so, you know, the, the, the veil and the other world, those are archetypes uh, deeply ingrained, I think. And this yearning for paradise, I think, manifests in uh, the modern mind um, of the liminal individual as this yearning for another world, for a world much more archetypal, much more mythological, and therefore much more meaningful, you know. And we have many more, um, many more examples of, uh, you know, concepts of the other world, um, more or less in so strong and more or less connected to the fall uh, in fantasy we have you know the you know the the colliding of the spheres in the witcher series and um most importantly the concept of the dreamlands in lovecraft and before him lord damsony and um i think it's it's no coincidence that i the, you know i was so strongly drawn uh, by um, lovecraft's and damsony's stories when i was a teenager and those are actually the ones who got me into fantasy. You know, most of the time with people, it's it's kind of the other way around. You know, the the, first, the thing that gets you into fantasy is something uh, much more modern, like uh, World of Warcraft, for example. And then you go back and you know discover the classics. For me, it was the other way around. I started with Danzani and Lovecraft, and then started discovering what else there is in popular culture um, because there was an age when the internet was not so much of a thing as it is now and I know I'm showing my age um, so the dreamlands though that that concept really really stuck with me when I was uh, when I was younger and um, you know in, uh, in Dunsany it's this beautiful realm that he escapes into and explores and um, which is already this desire for a world more magical than the one we have. But in Lovecraft, Lovecraft was very eccentric. And it, the material world, the world of men, the world of dirt, as I have poetically many times called it, it was very much unbearable to him. You know? So he comes up with stories uh, where the protagonist... Um, you know, l starts living more and more in the dreamlands where, to the point where his body decays in the material world uh, and he stays there forever. Or uh, like with the example of Pikman, where he becomes a ghoul so that he can partake in that more interesting world of the ghouls, you know. We have, a, I, I used to call this archetype the annihilation of the dreamer. Uh, back when in my philology days and this idea that you know that the dreamer starts living more and more in um, the dream world so he either goes mad or he, he decays or dies in the material world and dancing you have that archetypal story as well and in other um, and for example Arthur Macon's the hill of dreams is pretty much just a you know an examination of this archetype of the annihilation of the dreamer but from a, not a fantasy, but more of a psychological point of view. Uh, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And I think we have a modern equivalent with um, like people living in VR for a very long time 
and uh, their body decaying uh, in the real world or them losing touch with reality. You know, you have the sanitation bed, beds in um, Mother Horse Ices, uh, in the tales of Mother Horse Eyes. Um, I did a reading, not of the sanitation beds uh, parts, but other parts of uh, the tales of Mother Horse Eyes. You should definitely check that, the Flesh Interface series, all of that. It's very interesting. Uh, anyway, so yeah, um, the, all that VR stuff though, we're going to get into it later, but it's good that I already got into that a little bit. So, you know, we could go just examine the art and mythology aspect and the fantasy aspect much, much more, but I think I should just, um, you know, move on. Um, so the second part is, you know, occultism and magic. Um, you know, there's to keep with the previous theme because it never ends. I think the magus, you know, the mage, the wizard, he is like the archetype of the hubristic hero, you know, much like Solus and Satan in many ways, you know, and he's the hubristic hero both because, uh, you know, he commits hubris in the typical sense of overstepping the boundaries of what he can control, but also the, the theme of hubris and boundaries comes back into play in the sense that the, the mage is the bridge between worlds. Just like in Dragon Age, where he's, you know, the, the mage is the bridge between the fade and the material world. And so there's, I think, so even in this archetypal idea, occultism and magic was very interesting to me. And, you know, magic is also, symbolizes potential. So magic, like technology later on, which we'll uh, examine, magic is, a, at least in its mythological form, a multiplier of potential. So one thing, uh, you know, a, a liminal individual can dream of is having enough potential to tear the veil and make the world more interesting, you know, impregnate the world with wonder. Uh, so yeah, and then the other aspect of it is that is the experience of ritual itself, um, because I think that in uh, in ritual experience and generally any kind of experience, be it religious or any kind of experience that gets close to creating an altered state of consciousness, you know that experience creates a sense of another world. You know, for the hardcore materialist, it might just be. Uh, a temporary escape. Um, for the hardcore spiritualist, it might be, quote-unquote, evidence of there being something more. And there is a spectrum between those two extremes, and there's so many things on that spectrum that uh, a liminal individual would um, want to touch or would um, end up finding um, while exploring various things. So... Um, so, you know, the, the occult, occult part touches a lot on the art and fantasy and mythology part, of course. Um, I think I'm going to uh, put a pin on it right here so that we can talk about, you know, ritual and the psychology and epistemology of ritual uh, another time and um, go right into the uh, philosophy issues. So, on to the philosophy section. Now, the most obvious thing here 
you know, other worlds, tearing the veil. The most obvious thing is that we're going to go into Plato and uh, Platonism and idealism. You know, obviously, world of ideas, world of uh, experience, all of that, obviously. And we will. Now, just to get one thing out of the way, um, like my, my serious colleagues in the academy, you know, some of them, you know, the, the, the types that really love like uh, the Enlightenment and uh, maybe even Marxist materialism and stuff like that. They're going to throw at me the critique that the entirety of Plato's metaphysics is just a metaphor. Well, you know what? Fair enough. It might be. I don't really think so, but it might. You know, it might be. And uh, as I said, fair enough, but, you know, my instinctual... Um, and yet, at the same time, a refined answer to that is to take my most theatrical version of uh, received pronunciation and say, What an utterly boring individual you are, sir. I'd rather be called a charlatan and a commandante than associate with the likes of thee. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm you know, obviously overplaying it, but there's something that bothers me about this... Um, materialist metaphorical uh, approach to, to platonic metaphysics which is that behind all that there is just this uh, this um uh neo enlightenment uh you know new atheist uh, mentality of rejecting the wondrous and the mysterious and the mystery at the heart of being anything that sounds metaphysical you know must must be rationalized and i really don't like that now that's why that's also why i am like christian in some aspects but that also doesn't make me wrong it's a fine balance you be the judge of it anyway obviously as i said we have plato's world of ideas uh, we have this platonic dualism of two worlds uh, the world of experience the world of matter and on a you know on a level higher than that, uh, the, the metaphysical world, the world of ideas, it's essentially the, the, the world of eternal structures that manifests itself as the material world of experience. So we have this idea of the other world there already. But I'm more interested in uh, Neoplatonism. So starting with Plotinus, you know, Plotinus said that he considered himself um, essentially just a uh, let's say, a continuation of Plato. So he never said, I'm original. But in many ways he was. So he said that, yeah, okay, Plato got that right. You know, you have the material world and the world of ideas, but that's not all of it. And that you have uh, another world after that in some ways, which is like uh, being itself in its utter simplicity. And that's a world that you can... Only, you can never really approach, you can only mentally approach through metaphor, essentially, in poetic languages, he puts it. Um, so, uh, with Plotinus, we have the beginning of Neoplatonism, a Neoplatonic thought. And um, something very interesting develops with uh, Neoplatonism. Uh, sorry about the uh, car noises. Anyway, uh, as Neoplatonism develops, and uh, it develops in an, an age of uh, religious syncretism and uh, occultism in many ways, it reaches a point where we have theurgy. And theurgy is essentially um, 
a magical system, a system of magical rituals created by, let's say, a philosophical school that uh, has the intention of essentially breaking through the veil and reaching the world of ideas, you know, ascending the ontological chain, which is amazing because it's, I think it's also like an instance of ontological experimentation almost. Uh, but it's, it's a very interesting uh, case of, you know, the, the, this archetype of the other world and tearing the veil, uh, manifesting itself in philosophy. Now, there's also um, an idea in, in Platonic thought, which is that, that there is a, an, an attraction toward the transcendent, that the transcendent attracts the human mind. Uh, and again, this is this, this yearning for the other world, you know. The interesting thing, though, is that this, the concept of this attraction of the transcendent, we find something very similar in, surprise, Aristotle. And this is very interesting. So in Aristotle's metaphysics, uh, movement is very central. You know, you could even say that without movement, there is no existence in Aristotelian ontology. So the problem that um, Aristotle comes to where he, the only thing he can give as an answer is a metaphysical answer, is that he needs a prime mover, something that is the beginning of motion. Uh, and so what he says as a prime mover is something, an entity, a point, doesn't really matter. It's uh, metaphorically the center of existence. He doesn't put it that way. I'm just trying to make you visualize it. That has almost a gravitational pull. Everything is attracted to that, uh, in a way, transcendent point. And Aristotle uses a very interesting phrase of how the, the prime mover pulls, th creates motion in things. And he says that he that the prime mover pulls things os eromenon, which is hard to translate, but essentially, you know, Aristotle says that the uh, prime mover attracts things uh, as if they are, uh, things are in love with the prime mover, the prime mover. So there is this sense of romantic gravitational force almost which i think is a, is another manifestation of um the uh, the idea of the attraction of the transcendent which uh, you know a few steps on from that um you know it manifests itself as the idea of the yearning for the transcendent and then you know the yearning for another world so th this has always been a part of aristotle that has amazed me you know and Usually, I'm, I'm not a big fan of Aristotle. I, I really, I think he's extremely important. Uh, and we'll go into that um, another time. And uh, I really like his uh, ideas on art and rhetoric, which I think he understood things much better than Plato. Um, but generally, I find reading Aristotle boring. And I'm not saying that he is boring. It's just it was my reaction. But, you know, imagine my reaction when I was like, I don't know, 18, 19, and just reading through Aristotle for university and being bored and then coming up uh, to uh, the, 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 the metaphysical part of Aristotle and reaching the point of the romantic attraction uh, of the prime mover. I think you can imagine like my elation and my enthusiasm at that point. So um, I'm going to leave it here with the philosophy part. 
because we could really just uh, go on forever. Um, as in with all these uh, aspects, really. That's why I'm repeating myself so much. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go into the um, technology, transhumanism, and futurism aspect now. Um, so, uh, as, I, as I said before, um, and I've said a lot of times that magic can be seen as um, uh, an archetype for potential and uh, a desire for more potential and uh, something that creates new structures. And this is really what technology is in many ways, right? It's a, it's a potential multiplier. People say that technology is a force multiplier and that's correct, but that's not enough. It's a potential multiplier, you know, because it doesn't just mu multiply um, the efficacy of what you do now, but it creates the potential of structures that are at least on a certain level new, because nothing is really that new, but, you know, on a certain level new. So, obviously, somebody who is very deeply enthused by the the idea of tearing the veil and has is deeply almost burdened with this yearning for another world uh, is going to find um uh, is going to be pulled in by transhumanism and futurism and the potential of technology very strongly as it happened with me you know and at that point, technology seems like, and in many ways it is, um, a tool uh, with which to impregnate the mundane world with wonder. And, you know, I, I heard uh, Anders Sandberg talk about this, um, about these examples I'm going to give you, not all of them, but a lot of them. Um, Think about how, with technology, we have like brought into being um, like fairy tale archetypes. For example, you know the enchanted forest. In many ways, the city, especially if you see the city at night, it is like the enchanted forest. You know, it's it's um, a place that has a light in darkness that appears apparently out of nowhere, seemingly out of nowhere. You know. And uh, where, you know, magical things happen, you know, lifts go up, uh, you know, carriages drive without horses, you, you know, you know what I mean. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it really is, it really all comes together when you, when you combine this, uh, you know, the, 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 the applicable wonders of technology with this, um, uh, with an archetypal mindset. It clicks very easily. And this only continues, you know. Um, for example, think think of what can be achieved uh, on like an everyday level through a combination of augmented reality, virtual reality, and nanotechnology, you know. You could, you could have a world where matter responds to mind. You already have that to a certain degree, and that only goes up and up and up. We don't know to what point. Uh, we might reach the singularity, we might be destroyed. We don't know, but what we see now is this, con this continual um, high-velocity impregnation yeah, I guess impregnation uh, of the material world with wonder, with magic. And essentially, you know, it's reaching a point where um, 
everyday life is comparable to this um, uh, Dragon Age idea of pre-veil existence, where the material world and the fade are one and the same, and uh, you know, mind uh, affects matter, essentially. You know, so imagine you know having everything in your house uh, consisting of nano machines, and with one thought, which you can see as a spell, maybe you know, one thought that is technologically picked up. Let's like technologically mediate telepathy. You know, one thought that is picked up by a sensor, either from you, you know, pushing a button, or to the point where you know the software itself just reads your thought and reacts, and Everything in your room just sh turns into a different shape just instantly because it's nano machines, you know, and they can reform. So, and you know, obviously, this this vision of this future is like is like mental mental candy, you know, to uh, to somebody burned with the yearning for another world. Because it's and you can see how excited I sound when I'm talking about it and. I know all the shortcomings and all the potential problems of that. And, you know, I've seen it from a distance and kind of put stops to my enthusiasm, but I'm still enthusiastic about it because it just touches my central nerve. And I think a lot of people are like that. And having talked about virtual reality, this just very easily uh, takes us to video games, you know, because video games especially fantasy and sci-fi video games, but video games in general are such, such a perfectly crystallized instant of, you know, the, the archetype of tearing the veil and stepping into another world. And it's not just another world, but because it is designed for you to have an experience, it is a world of wondrous narratives and of meaningful archetypal experience. And so it's no wonder people get addicted to gaming. You know, one one aspect is obviously, you know, the very much designed dopamine addiction um, in in terms of simple mechanics, but there is there is also another aspect, a greater aspect of that very high dopamine reward system kind of thing where video games are designed so that most of your experience, even if you're living like a fantasy life simulator, still most of that experience is tailored in a way that it feels meaningful and archetypal because you're essentially on a mythological journey. I hope I'm being, I hope I'm getting across what I'm trying to say because, you know, I get carried away with all the enthusiasm, but I think this is I think me letting go and just letting the enthusiasm speak is is a necessary part for me to communicate the intricacies of uh, the yearning for another world and the tearing the veil archetype. So, again, I'm going to stop uh, here with this, but um, I don't know. Uh, are you just as enthusiastic as I am? Are you more uh, worried or skeptical or, um, I don't know, you know, just tell me in the comments, especially on this one, because I'm so over-enthusiastic and I know this just over, you know, overlooks a lot of uh, either problems or, you know, missing structures and this whole, uh, you know, mental process. So I, I'd really love your input on this.
So guys, I think I'm going to stop here. I'm really, really thankful um, for you following me on this journey. I'm sure there are going to be a lot of episodes where I'm going to go into much darker things. And it's nice that the first episode after the introduction was much more upbeat. Although it did have um, dark undertones. But I think, you know, the enthusiastic tone by itself um, is a good thing. Whether it's warranted or not. I kind of like it, you know. I, I like this this strong energy that came out of me on this episode and that I was really, really happy to talk about this. And I want to know if it was similar for you. Um, so just to get into some uh, technical stuff now before I leave you. So the uh, first two episodes will be on uh, various audio-only platforms in, uh, in a few days, um, as I promised. Uh, I don't want to announce yet what they're going to be, but I'm the, you know, the, when it's done, the links are going to be in the description of both videos, and I'm going to announce it on Facebook as well. So, you know, for those of you who want the uh, audio-only, or, you know, if you want it on another platform, that will be available. The The episodes are already available on BitChute. Um, if you, for some reason, don't want to uh, listen on YouTube right now. So, uh, oh, and just one thing before um, I leave you. You know, if for some reason you think that I was uh, not respectful enough, or maybe too respectful of Chris Chan in the first segment, and especially on the uh, pronouns issue. Guys, you're probably overthinking it. Look, you know, in my audience, small as it may be, you know, I have people from both sides of the political spectrum, and I really like that. You know, I really like that. So I always try to avoid unnecessary division, you know, and it would be great if, you know, you can kind of play along on that, you know what I mean? Uh, just so we don't get lost in uh, unnecessary, you know, discussions that are, uh, in the end, just take us away from things that can unite us and things that we can talk about here. So, um, And, you know, if you just want to see, if, if you want to know my uh, take on Christian, you know, for all of Christian's faults, I really like Christian. And uh, in my own way, and um, you know, sonic true and all. Let's put it this way. Uh, so again, thank you guys. Um, and uh, you know, as I said previously, especially in this episode, because I've been so upbeat and everything. Please, please leave your thoughts in the comments if you're on YouTube or BitChute. Uh, please do. I really want to read what you have to say on this. Uh, I'll make sure to get uh, to respond to all comments. So thank you very much, guys. Um, it's, uh, you know, uh, 11 p.m. right now. So, uh, you know, on my end, have a nice night. Um, I'll, pr I'll probably work a couple more hours on editing and stuff before I uh, go play some Skyrim uh, because it's fitting. So bye, guys. Um, yeah, hope to talk to you soon.